Hello, everyone. I am Jennifer Braverman. And I'm Ellen Selm. And welcome to our podcast, Stories from the Earth. Where we explore mankind's relationship and connection with the natural world. We would like to take a quick moment to invite our listeners to consider a humble little donation. You can go to our anchor page and donate for $1, $10, or $5 a month, and that would really help support the show and its growth. And we appreciate that. And also, um, we are now on Apple Podcasts. Today, we're going to be talking with Josh Fox, instructor and practitioner of Fox Herbs and Acupuncture in Asheville, North Carolina. In addition to being a licensed acupuncturist and herbalist, Josh also is a singer, songwriter, and storyteller who enjoys uh, themes and focus of the natural world and some of his uh, creations. So we'll be sharing some of those as well. Thanks, Josh. Yeah, so glad to be with y'all. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what led to your pursuit on a professional level of natural healing arts and herbalism and that sort of thing? Like what, what got you to where you are now? Well, I think it was somewhere 15, 20 years ago, um, living out on the West Coast and I was super into dreaming lucid dreaming and vivid dreaming and somebody one day said uh that there's this plant out there called mugwort and if i find it and and put a little bit under my pillow um that might influence my dreams a little bit and uh so there was actually some growing not too far down from this little trailer i was living in in a blackberry thicket in eugene oregon um i put some under my pillow and that night i had the most intensely colorful vivid dreams and i tried it for a few nights they remained colorful and uh i started getting anxious at that point um started having nightmares after night three and then insomnia came and uh but as soon as i kind of left that room i was able to sleep again and it showed me how powerful this plant was i never heard about it and I figured that if this plant was so powerful that I didn't even have to ingest it for it to affect me so deeply, there's probably thousands of other herbs out there that I just don't know about. And kind of slowly and steadily grew my interest and started studying a little here and there with many different places. And now I find myself in private practice, weaving plants into my life in so many ways. They have a way of doing that. They just kind of seed themselves in. Once, you, once you're in, you're kind of hooked. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And they, all, uh, they guided me at some point to Southern Appalachia, where I thought I was just going to spend uh, six months doing an herbal program. And now, almost 15 years later, I'm still here because uh, there's still more to learn and more to figure out with them. Life, lifelong journey, that is. For sure. So speaking of education, what has your botanical slash herbal education been like? It began um, on the West Coast. I found some teachers, Darren Huckle and Ben Zappin, who are students of Michael Tierra's. Nice. And so they really incorporated a lot of Chinese medicine um, and energetics into what they were doing. And it just gave me like just 
burgeoning curiosity to devour whatever I could around herbs, started accumulating books. And eventually I made my way to some rainbow gatherings where I, I met Frank Cook, who was just an enormous influence, legendary. Yeah, wow, that's a, a very lucky, lucky uh, chance you got to meet him. That's awesome. Yeah. And so if, if uh, viewers, listeners uh, have never heard about him, this is uh, epic. He, it felt like he was seven feet tall, big baritone voice, dragging giant dreadlocks around the world, introducing <laughs> people to plants, but really using plants as uh, a jumping, a stepping stone to like developing just bigger wisdom on how to live on our planet Earth. And so he kind of nurtured my curiosity to go deeper. So I went on to study with Corey Pine Shane, apprenticed with him, which brought me to Asheville area. Then quickly started teaching for his school. I lived out with Joe Hollis out at Mountain Gardens and went deeper with uh, Chinese medicine and growing the herbs and, and talking to the plants, learning from them directly. And then as if like I couldn't be satiated, I decided to jump into Chinese medicine school because I knew it would occupy me for at least four years until I could get more of an old herbal understanding with it. And, and I think beyond there, just uh, doing a lot of plant teaching has continued my education, just staying curious, teaching at a lot of the herb schools and at the Chinese medicine college um, has kept me learning and just growing with the plants. Now your website has a section on it that says classes. So outside of um, the local Chinese medicine school and Corey Pine school, do you teach some things directly yourself, either online or in person that folks like listeners who might not even be in the area could, could find you and check you out? I haven't done uh, online teaching yet. It might be coming soon. And most of my herbal teaching is really just uh, relegated to the Blue Ridge School these days. But some more of my work, which I'm, I'm sure we'll dip our, our toes into, has been grief work. And some of the more passionate and passion teaching I've been doing lately has been training people how to hold ritual around grief, teaching people how to, to sit with grief, um, and even weaving in some of that herbal knowledge along with it. So that's been the big, kind of more of my focus these days. Seems very apropos given the way the world's gone, especially in the last year. <laughs> yeah, someone jokingly, it's like, you, if you work with grief, you're never going to really run out of uh, work for yourself. And it's, it's really true. There's so much, so much up now, especially in this kind of pandemic time. But in truth, just so much, there's so much grief to where the world is now, where the earth is now, where we've come with in this culture um, that's orphaned itself and, and moved so far away from connection with the earth. But there's plenty to, to tap into. So besides doing, uh, having a, besides having a private acupuncture, practice and teaching at herb schools, you also do music. You also write songs about herbs, which we thought was super cool. 
Yeah. <laughs> and um, you've written some songs relating to nature and specific herbs. You put out a recording, and that is titled Spells Cast by Rain, which is on Bandcamp, and we will link that so people can listen to all the songs. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the inspiration behind doing this project, and do you have do you have more musical storytelling endeavors in the works? Well, this came along partially through my teaching, just realizing that reading herb books is something very new and that most cultures actually shared a lot of their wisdom and knowledge of the plants through telling stories and singing songs. There was, I definitely have to tip my hat to Jim Duke and, and Doug Elliott for showing me what it's like to bring some whimsical plant songs um, out. And I just started crafting some, a more of a left brain kind of thing. And and then there's other songs that the plants just kind of gave me or started, certain tunes would go in my head every time I was around yellow root or jewelweed. I started accumulating this and the more I'd sing them around campfires and song circles, the more people kept asking, wanting to hear them. You can only sing them so many times, so I decided to record, put some energy in the studio before my son was born. And it captures nine of these songs um, and produced with a lot of some of my favorite musicians in the Asheville area came on to help produce that album. And since then, there's probably 50 other songs that haven't made it on yet. The one I'm most excited about, which we actually featured in this giant puppet theater in uh, a story my friend wrote called Ancestor Forest. We did a big production on Earth Day and it featured a song I did called The Earth is Alive. And what it is, is it's a, a song about phenology, which means kind of like the order or occurrences that happen based on other occurrences. And so it goes through four seasons, early spring, late spring, summer and fall for each of those verses, it um, talks about the progression of plants. And so you can follow the song all the way through and know the plants of Southern Appalachia based on kind of the order that they show up. Nice, and very so good teaching tool. Every year I'm trying to list and, and keep track of what what blooms first and what blooms next and what happens after the dandelions and before the daffodils and the red buds and um, the song is an attempt to, to get it right. Right. Mm. We were talking with Deanna Rose when we were interviewing her and she does music as well. And I think we were talking about this person makes songs about herbs. And the thing is that like when you read herbal books, they can be kind of dry and a little boring and it's hard to keep that information in your brain it's just it's just on the page there and so this this the idea of having these songs these new songs about herbs around was so cool because it's almost like bringing back sort of that way of teaching where like probably in the past we didn't learn it from books we learned it from someone else in in real life and hands-on situations so that's why we were excited about 
Yeah. yeah. And it's, there's so many traditions that have embedded the plants into the music, knowing that we can access the medicine of plants in different ways instead of just through ingestion. And you really see that with a lot of uh, the Peruvian plant medicine songs, the Icaros, where just calling these plants into the circle um, brings some of their magic forth. And even my teacher, um, Frank Cook, would say, you know, with echinacea, we don't need to take it. We can just think about it and invite that medicine into our body. And so there's also a real power of like, we're going to sing the song of uh, about dandelion and and really feel the magic as it as it comes through. I was listening to them and, and they're just so happy. I don't know. They're just they just make me smile. And I was just like, I just I felt like you did capture the essence of the, the plants really well from. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, so if you've got 50 more sitting on a shelf somewhere and you're, <laughs> you you got a few more albums worth of material, that's awesome. I think there'll be some day where they get recorded. <laughs> um, so much big work to do in this world. So yes. it's also, I, I feel like I differ from most, a lot of musicians um, where I'm not a performer. I don't mind performing once in a while, but it's not my goal to kind of set up gigs from town to town. But to really, uh, I use these songs in ritual. I use these songs one-on-one -on -one with my patients in my private practice. I use this as medicine and medicine can be done through performance, but I tend to use them more ceremonially as a way of, for healing, individual and group healing. That, that makes sense, kind of puts a little more of a, an intimate touch to it, you know, if, if it's one-on-one -on -one with somebody you've, you're, you know, doing acupuncture and maybe other things, it's almost like, well, you know, some people might be familiar with sound healing in terms of uh, musical healing ability, but in your case, adding the words and the meaning in the words too, that's, that's kind of a nice different spin on it. Yeah, for sure. So you, you mentioned in an email about the song called Goldenrod and that it fits well into the fall season, which is the season that we are in. And it talks about letting go. So along with acupuncture and herbal medicine, you also do work with grief, which you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Can you tell us um, a little more about your, your work with grief and about the song Goldenrod and how it connects with that work? And we're going to listen to the song now, and then when we come back, we'll talk about it. Awesome. Go. Not 
Goldenrod, to me, marks the tail end of the great procession of blooms. It's certainly not the last plant to bloom, but it is part of that grand finale as we move into fall. And I kind of liken all the different species of goldenrod in their you know, golden yellow colors, like the grand finale of a fireworks show. They kind of look like fireworks that just um, poof out in anticipation of of the quiet, in anticipation of uh, the darkness, and so the song is 
it recognizes some of the medicine of goldenrod, helps the waters move through us, and then also mark that sense of completion that all creation fades away, that the language of grief, like everything that we love is going to, we're going to lose at some point. To understand that life is, is precious and temporary, and through our life we're going to have these losses, individual losses, losses of parts of the earth, loss of loved ones. It's so fitting in the fall time. If we uh, really observe nature, we see that fall is the darker time. It's the time where all the energy starts to, in the plants and in humans too, we start to internalize, we start to deepen. There's more of introspection. It's not following that outer, you know, excitement and abundance of the spring and summer months. It's it's a coming back into ourselves. A lot of the native traditions talk about that being of the West, the sunset time. And nature reminds us that there's balance in everything. So as a tree, the bran the branches can't stretch out unless the roots go just as deep. And so something that we've we're kind of missing in our culture is doing that root work. Is knowing that things can't just get faster and faster and better and better and exciting. And there has to be like a downward decline to the energetics of, of everything we do. And with that, if we're gonna enjoy things and, and feel the joy and abundance and love of things, there's also gonna be loss. There's also gonna be death. There's also gonna be giving up our leaves like the goldenrod, giving up the foliage and, and bringing that energy back into the root to remember its source, what we are and what our souls wanna do. And so a big part of my work feels, has just turned out to be uh, normalizing grief in our culture, normalizing it not as a pathological thing, but actually part of our the healthy cycle that we go through as human. Knowing that physiologically, like moving grief can be the healthiest thing because it helps us, it helps really appreciate what we've loved to honor that which we've loved and lost so we can make space in ourselves for more joy. So our, our heart cracks open so it can be rebuilt and be able to hold more light. They say there's a, that line, there's a crack in everything and that's how the light gets in. There's a truth in that, that we have to crack apart. We have to fall apart um, in order to, to show back up again. Culturally, there's a great reluctance in doing that. Yeah. Even when we lose somebody, what I've witnessed in, in certain cultures when, when folks pass away, there's just enormous amount of grieving and wailing and uh, in keening. And we just don't see it. It's Things are kind of wrapped up tightly um, in most of the kind of modern American funerals that I've seen. And so there's really this time of the year and whatever time of the year it might happen. I offer the big invitation to really, when grief knocks at your door, to, to let him in, give him all the space he wants, give him all the the food he wants, the medicines, like really sit down and, and make time to let this energy move through you. Because as a private practitioner, um, having seen so much 
pathology come to my door, I've recognized over time that so many issues, so many physical issues that people show up with, different autoimmune diseases, cystitis, nephritis, uh, fibroids, different lung congestion issues, issues of the heart, anything you can name, chronic fatigue syndrome, there's always this underpinning that there's, there's some grief underneath that grief, trauma, maybe some shadows there that are kind of clogging the way and congesting the energetic body to which it starts affecting the physical body. I was actually going to ask you, you know, being that you were a practitioner, how much you had thought that, um, that there was that link between in this Western culture that's kind of clamped down somewhat on its deeper emotions at least in public spaces and whatnot, that, you know, it seems like we, we've done that so long, we become challenged to even express it to ourselves, mm -hmm. let alone mm -hmm. anything wider than that. And if that could point to a link in some of our chronic conditions that we see in health, but uh, yeah, you more or less just answered that in your, your explanation. You so you do see a link a lot of times carried their grief and it's turned into a physical manifestation. Yeah. The, the more I've been working on this level, the more I see folks healed from releasing this grief, basically allowing energy to move where it's getting blocked in Chinese medicine. They say that all pain is points to stagnation. And so pain being kind of the quintessential pathology that, associated with many of our illnesses, they knew in the ancient times that there's something stagnant and it might take the form of phlegm or chi or blood or, or food stasis that's there. And ultimately the energetic blueprint underneath that comes from our energetic or emotional body of things that haven't been resolved, um, things that the body's pushing up against. And what we, what I see is what we resist persists. Hmm. So if we don't take time to to feel into to everything we need to feel into, then it's a place where things can get stuck and stagnant and start injuring the body. So when you're doing this work with folks, it sounds to me like, you know, maybe in an ideal world, people would learn the skills that you're trying to imbue in them before even a major loss so that they're better equipped to handle anything that might come up. I'm sure, you know, even with most healthcare, people tend to be reactive more than proactive. So I imagine you get a lot of people who've been stuck and they're now looking for what they can do to be unstuck. But um, I just wonder if, if for your work continuing, do you hope to get to a point where you're even like attracting people from that standpoint of like, no, th this is important for everybody to know now. Anytime is a good time. Don't just wait till you lose a loved one or something like that, right? Yeah. In, in some ways, it's part of my medicine to normalize this grief work. So these grief rituals we've been doing, um, I just did four of them last month. People are starting to show up out of curiosity, which is a beautiful thing now of like, oh, maybe there is something here to, 
release and and to understand that grief isn't just about losing or somebody dying in your family, but grief can be losing an opportunity or old heartbreak you never got the chance to feel in. It could be recognizing ourselves as cultural orphans, um, disconnected from ancestors and our indigenous roots. It could be the shame and guilt that that lies inside of ourselves for um, not receiving the love or being received or accepted when you're born into a certain world or a certain family. And so all these things, they leave trails of resistance. They leave gunk in our system that that gets sticky along the way. And so just to, to normalize grief in our culture is to recognize that if we're all going to get together for celebrations and weddings and birthdays and bar mitzvahs and anniversaries, then we should also get together and do some of this grief work and recognize that like this doesn't have to be a private thing and it doesn't have to be a shameful thing. It's actually our our technology of how to return back to the joy. That's interesting thinking about that, you know, when you were just listing out all these, you know, what people would say is positive reasons people get together and gather and it's like outside of a funeral which is very kind of dry and somber a lot of times there isn't anything beyond that Uh, i would say it might it seems like it's become more popular for people to do like celebration of life type gatherings but overall that is such a nice concept to imagine that you know like okay you know it takes a village right like don't don't just be alone in your sorrow you just kind of gives a whole new meaning to a pity party. I don't know. <laughs> it's like yeah. put a positive spin on the pity party. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Some friends of mine call it, uh, oh, you're you're leaving another sad party? <laughs> um, you know, sometimes I, I ask myself, I'm like, gosh, how did I get trapped into doing all this grief work? And then, and then I go to a ritual. I might be facilitating. I still go to the altar and do the work and then I remember like, I just feel so much lighter and so much better and so much clearer. You know, usually we're all laughing by the end of uh, these days together. And it's why I, I stand by this work and, and feel like it's so vital. Yeah, that's awesome. It's like proof in a, in a session that you, that you see it come out the other side. Yeah. That's great. I really, I really like the, well, at least in a lot of anime that I watch, and and I believe uh, other other media of the of Japan, they have these like ancestor shrines in their house, mm-hmm. and I really really like that idea because it's like, you know, it it's a way of connecting to the people that we've lost. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like it's a negative way. Usually, it's like positive. They're giving them their favorite food, they're chatting with them, you know, they're, and I think that in our culture, the only thing we have that is visiting maybe somebody's gravesite. And this is in the house. And it's, I, something about that I just really like. Beautiful. And there's some teachings I've uh, kind of gleaned from some indigenous cultures around the need to go through that grieving process in order for those um, deceased ones to properly become ancestors. And so there's something on 
both sides of it. It's like they need us to acknowledge that loss to bring them to that place of being ancestors. And we need to do that emptying so we can open up to a, a new kind of relationship with them. Because if we don't properly grieve those that have passed, um, we're stuck in the mindset of, of having lost the way that we once related all of our life. But if we can grieve that, we're, we're opening up a new relationship to where we can stay connected in this new form more through the spiritual veil. And that's no small thing. Obviously, as you mentioned in, in Japan, having the ancestors there in the home, I'm thinking too of the Dia de los Muertos in, in Mexico yeah. or the with all the, the pictures of everybody. It's this idea that the ancestors aren't people who have just passed. It's they're still part of the community. They're actually like counted within the circle of their family as much as anybody living because there's important work on the other side. Can you tell us a little bit about your song writing process and like how you maybe pick which plants to write about? I, I like to say that they pick me and the process is it's so different every time. I love going out morale and I've been going, I don't know, for 10, 12 years or so in the early spring, just when the conditions are right. When the mat changes from the fall leaves to like more of the greenish spring ephemerals, when the lindera is out, when the sister ivy puts off its first leaves um, and the fiddleheads are bouncing out, you know it's about time to go to the north coves where this is all erupting. The little bloodroot flowers are on their way. That time a song comes, which is the, the song of the morels, and I just start whistling it in my head, and I believe it It leads me to them. I start to see them more and more as I'm whistling this tune all day, walking through. But if you asked me to whistle it now or sing it, I wouldn't be able to. It's a, a song that perfectly sits in the forest with these creatures. And so there's songs like that that'll never get sung or recorded. There's a song of the yellow root that I've been working with for eight years and little pieces come. Um, maybe that'll be done at some point. Some of them are more like odes. Dandelion had been bringing me so much joy and there were some of my teachers, Frank Cook and uh, Greenlight, this other older herbalist, had kind of initiated me into the joy of Dandelion. And so I just kind of wrote that um, fixed on uh, the goal of that peak moment that I see here in Appalachia in uh, early April, when all of those blooms just kind of explode all together. That was a process of, uh, I think, of following the natural joy of the dandelion. Um, there's a mangrove song I wrote, which a tune just started whistling in my head. And then some old sailor voyager who once you know, paddled the, the seas close to Florida in mangrove country, started singing in his accent, um, the verses and the stories of him being with the mangroves. And so all of these just kind of have a unique impression. I'm, 
I've got a lot of Virgo in my chart and I want it to be all nicely boxed in where I can just kind of like finish these songs and have them tidy <laughs> and produce them and put them, put them in these boxes for people to hear. And I know that nature doesn't work like that. Um, everything's got its own pace and timing. Um, now the mangrove song, were you down in that area when it came to you? Well, the song whistled in my head up here in the winter. Um, and while I was climbing around in the mangroves, that song uh, emerged from me and I knew the rest of it just downloaded at that point. Like this whole story came through that, uh, that first little melody that had shown up and almost waiting to be born in that place. Or perhaps it was that melody that called me down to the mangroves in order to register the rest of the song. So Mangrove and Dandelion are on the album yeah. and we're just gonna play those two songs for everyone to hear so you get an idea of them and then we'll come back for more questions. Awesome. The tides will not 
Such peacefulness and ease to thrive within the harshest Be early April, let's all witness. 
hemispheres explode with dandelion. And your beauty are divine Dandelion Reflecting back the springtime sunny shine Your flowers leave a sphere behind Comprised of parachuting seeds That make more dandelions These magic seeds When gently blown Disperse our wishes to the wind And in the earth their song I'm endlessly impressed by your true elegant design How I long for early April When I witness fiends explode with dandelion Dandelion Your presence and your beauty are divine Reflecting back the springtime sunny shine Dandelion Your presence and your beauty are divine Dandelion Reflecting back the springtime sunny shine Oh, reflecting back the springtime sunny shine those songs. Dandelion is one of my favorites as I probably have mentioned and I love dandelion a lot. It was one of the first plants that I started working with so I and it's always very happy and it's just all over the place. That, that one really needed the honor of a song in order to help break it out of its much maligned uh, oh, role in our culture. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think our, we're one of the unique cultures that's kind of uh, trashed it for a while. Um, but being one that grows on nearly every continent um, and in so many places, it has been revered by so many other cultures. So I think we're just in the minority of those who yeah. have uh, decided it was some kind of toxic weed that we need out of our yards. I mean, literally, if you go look at a bottle of weed killer, there's a picture of a dandelion on it. Yeah. I mean, it's that powerful of a plant that uh, <laughs> it's almost revered in that way. Yeah. It's a powerful, you know, challenging the, the grave order of endless lawn. Well, you kind of told us... Um what the first herb was you connected with and why in terms of the mugwort story. So maybe to build on that, I would say, what is the first herb you connected with and why in terms of sitting with one or having it kind of speak to you, be it something that inspired a song or not, or just inspired your work? Because um, it seems like Mugwort, somebody told you about, you went and found it, you had that experience, the elevated work you were already doing with the lucid dreaming. 
what was like the next plant to come to you and be like, Hey, since you're on this whole plant kick, what about me? <laughs> Gosh, there are a few, there's been many teachers along the way. Yarrow was certainly one that, that popped up early on. And I remember also being blown away on a camping trip where I, I, I burned the crap out of my fingers. Um, and chewed up a leaf and, and put it on and immediately like felt the pain sensation go away and immediately felt the, uh, you know, just felt healing happening. Um, so it quickly became an ally. And it's kind of followed me along the way. I was even uh, teaching a, a plant field trip up in the Joyce Kilmer area. We got up onto some ridge lately and uh, I've been so deep in the grief work. I've, I haven't forgotten or lost my connection with plants, but uh, Yarrow is waiting for me up at the top um, <laughs> of this meadow that we, that I, I was doing a botany class with these students. And on the walk in, I had the most unbelievably painful toothache. And I've never had anything like that. And I, I turned to my co-teacher and I was like, I don't think I'm going to make it through this week of teaching. Like, I think I might have to go drive back to Asheville and get some kind of emergency dental work because this thing's laying me out. Um, and I just kind of, I saw Yara chuckling at me from the background <laughs> and, and I went up and, and put my ear down to listen in the way I haven't in a while. It kind of asked a question in the way plants ask questions. And uh, it was kind of like, don't like, can't I be of assistance here? And I've always seen Yarrow as this panacea of plants. And I went through a, a Yarrow song in my head that some friends had written thinking of all the ways and I'm like, I don't remember toothache. Oh, but there's something about the root of yarrow, which seldom gets used, um, mm. which has a lot of those like spicy alchemides, like black pepper, echinacea. Immediately then um, one offered itself to me to be able to chew up. And again, I was blown away. You know, this is years after like, okay, I know, I know these plants are powerful. But I chewed some up and relief in 15 minutes in the entire five days, it never came back, that tooth pain. And so once again, I just, you know, this connection with Yarrow has been um, ever present and I continue to learn. I think that's, that's a big humbling lesson I keep coming back to. We can get in our own way sometimes by, by thinking we know this plant even our very favorite ones that we that we think we know everything but just like any one of our friends they surprise us sometimes there's some little secret in their back pocket um, that we get to understand and to think you know everything about somebody or something or some plant is to actually put a wall up but to continue with curiosity and wonderment is to stay in relationship with it that was such a big teaching lesson for me right there especially with the pride of being a teacher and like, okay, I know I'm supposed to know everything about these yeah, <laughs> to remember how much I still have to learn. And grow. Well, people, I mean, are so conditioned by the healthcare system, maybe as it is 
to just have that thinking of, you know, this does this for this, you know, you can point at this to say this hurts. So you take this thing and it does this and then you're, you know, and, and you can't, you know, even though the industry tries with, you know, standardized extracts, you know, with a specific constituents that they research, like, there might be a time and a place, but sometimes it's like throwing the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. You know, it's like there's so many compounds in every single plant, you know, and they're working in in concert with one another that the thought that you're ever going to know all of every one, you know, it's just uh, that's 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 rather presumptuous, you know, if people think that like, oh, yes, I have all of dandelion figured out. And then, or yeah. yarrow, yeah, that was a better example. Nobody yeah. talks about the root hardly ever, you know, and it's like, oh, yeah, but there's that thing that it does. <laughs> yeah. Surprise. I mean, Beyond maybe... compounds, there's just so much magic and there's so much mystery in what we can't quantify, what we can't see. I know some plant healers that would just work with three plants their entire life or just one plant that was like the master teacher plant for them um that could be called on to do all sorts of things that you never read in books but it's again it's just about relationship and cultivating that just having faith in that mystery and having faith in what we we don't know or can't see i always appreciated that approach of the uh michael tiara because he's mentioned that in his books about, you know, like sometimes it's better to just know, you know, maybe 10 or 12 pretty well and not worry about all the rest. And that's enough of a, an arsenal, so to speak for your, for your work without having to think that you're ever going to learn everything. And we're uh, here in Southern Appalachia. We are just blessed by the crazy abundance of plants. Um, so it's easy to get caught up into like, well, let me figure out these the 300 <laughs> ones that are in this these woods. We can easily get lost in just this year, the vastness of what's available here. Uh, but really, if I can just follow a couple of them, like through the seasons and really see the ins and outs of, you know, Biden's is a plant I've known forever, but only this season have I really started to, um, or this past year, did I ever start to really watch like, mm -hmm how it grows and how it takes off and it seeds and it's flowers. Yeah, sometimes we have to, it's helpful to narrow our sight. So tell us some ways in which you connect with the natural world and or stay grounded. And I think it's especially important in the times you're living in to try to stay as grounded as possible. For me, it's important to feel humbled by the earth. And that happens, I notice, when I climb trees, it helps me feel small and feel held by something bigger. I just went on a pilgrimage out west into the desert and as a, a counterpoint to being here in Appalachia and, and getting to to just feel like, wow, this is a new environment I don't know, and I'm I'm so small in this big desert, um, with a vision quest out there, and that really helped me ground in. Staying curious is huge part of that, because there's something about that humility and curiosity that that keep us as a child 
with a certain sense of wonderment. I live with a bunch of gardeners. I tend to keep a few plants. Um, this year, I really just have three tobacco plants that I just loved up on. Um, and something about the inner interplay and exchange with those plants just kind of rooted me down in the way that tobacco does. Also rooted me up in a way. <laughs> I grew to be 12 feet tall, which I was blown away by. So staying engaged with that process. My curiosity right now in the plant world has been with the cemetery plant. So replacing white sage with different resins from our evergreens in this area to burn on coals, finding alternatives to use in rituals, um, things that are either local or can be handcrafted in really good ways. And so that pursuit has kept me connected and grounded. And there's other things like meditation and dance and, and singing that help too. We like to ask this to anybody involved with um, natural healing sort of realms. How would you define health and healing? That's a great question. The more I've sat with it, the more I recognize that medicine or poison can be the same thing, just kind of on a different perspective. I've come to really deeply believe that we're, we've incarnated on earth here um, to kind of refine our soul or to shine a bit more. And so in order to do that, we have to go through these initiations and journeys and, and go through some hard stuff in order to emerge a bit shinier or to, to gain certain treasures that we find in the community. There's an importance not to, to rush the net or lose out on the lessons that we can gain. And so I think healing is that it's that process of accepting, that process of surrendering into whatever transformation needs to happen. It's not keeping yourself, you know, in a soft padded box and nothing happens, but it's to, to come into full aliveness, whatever that aliveness might look like. I think it was in Martin Brechtel's book, Secrets of the Talking Jaguar, or, or something else he had written at one point, about the idea of the shaman wasn't there to, to keep you from dying. It was to help you die well. And so it got me thinking about the healer's job is to, to just help people live well and fully, um, not to skirt around the surface and, and avoid the inevitable, but to really... Kind of sees life with two hands. So if we can be present to whatever pain might show up, if we can be present to whatever struggles might happen in life, if we can be present with just whatever offers itself in the moment, then that feels really healing to me, staying in that place of aliveness. Just thinking about that some uh, pain just sort of smacks you in the face and you you can't ignore it. Uh -huh. so that's maybe that's why it, so that you don't ignore it. Right. Yeah. We've created millions of ways of how to distract ourselves away from that pain. But the big question is like, can we dig in? Like, what is, what is this saying? 
Um, what is the wisdom of our body trying to tell us? What is this moment in time offering us? What opportunity is right here that we don't want to push away? I feel like after we do enough of these interviews, we should just like compile a huge list of all of these beautiful definitions of health and healing. And it'll just be like this amazing inspirational piece for people to read over. <laughs> for sure. That's a good idea. I'd love to read that. What? So we're going to go back to just herbalism in general for a minute. What role do you feel herbal medicine might play in our future? I think the, the future of our medicine is the past of our medicine. And we can't forget that we've been evolving and living with these plants for just like millennia. Um, that 150 years ago, herbal medicine was the, uh, that was the medicine for us in our culture. And for 80% of the world right now, it's still the main um, medicine. And I wanted to find herbal medicine too, not just as like little bottles of tincture or pills that you might pop um, kind of in these allopathic packages, but just our connection with these plants through the continuum of herbal medicine and food um, on that that continuum of keeping us well. I'm in this day and age, I have skeptical hope for humans. I feel really, I feel good about that the earth is going to be fine. And I, I really wonder if we're going to maintain things for ourselves to exist and sustain on this planet. And I think in order, if we make that choice that we want to be here um, and that we, we want seven generations to follow us, it's going to need to be coming back into right relationship with, with these plants, these helping plants, right relationship with the animals as well. And to uh, realize that we all need to thrive for each other to thrive. Yeah. Um, our coexistence is like mutually dependent is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I think it's a, there's kind of a choice point we're at right now. And I know so many of us are, are choosing to come back and, and remember in this big way. That interconnectedness can be sparked by, or that, that, that memory of that interconnectedness or the respect of it can be sparked by so many things too, you know, like plants are one of those things, you know, maybe it's somebody's animal, maybe it's somebody's just appreciation of the land they're on um, as a whole, whatever the little tipping point is, you know, that's a good sign to get, to get more minds turned back towards those thoughts of interconnectedness. Yeah, that's, that that's definitely a big role for herbs to play, I would say. Yeah, and I think it's really important. Um, it's important that we don't receive herbs in our life within this allopathic framework of like, okay, you're sick, like take this herb and you'll be better. Um, certainly, like it's moving in the right direction, but 
kind of in the footsteps of Frank Cook, it's more about bigger webs of interconnection. It's about coming back into that right relationship. It's about coming into deeper understanding of our home, um, this earth, feeling yourself as a part of it, not just kind of like extracting little bits of it. And there's been something fascinating to, to stand back and look at some of those invasive plants that have made their way here. So many of them have come from Asia. And I'm thinking in my mind right now about Japanese honeysuckle and, and kudzu, Japanese knotweed. It's fascinating to, on one level, it's like, oh my gosh, we need to do something about these plants. They're taking over. You know, kudzu is taking over all these you know, empty fields, which is, it's true, but on another level of reality, it's like, okay, what do, why are they here? Like, what do they have to show us and teach us? What does the woolly adelgid have to teach us? Maybe it's here to create more reishi because that's what we need. Um, especially in light of the pandemic, a virus coming from Asia, it's interesting to have all these other plants that spread spread around us really quickly. And incidentally, I've uh, in the research I've done and also in clinically what I've used, I've used a lot of those plants as uh, um, treatments for, for COVID to work with the conditions that a lot of patients have been left with, specifically the knotweed, the, the honeysuckle mm -hmm. in kudzu. And it's, it's fascinating to think about like, okay, maybe they, they brought themselves over here because to share their medicines abundantly like super abundantly in this time where we need them most and if we can cue into that we can benefit from them the answers tend to be right in front of us or at least more questions most of the plants that we you know are treating as invasive here do all have some sort of use whether it's food fiber medicine all of the above you know, so it's like invasive by whose standards, right? <laughs> you know, like there could come a time and a place where you will be very thankful that that plant is in your backyard, you know? Yeah. And maybe we won't know, again, back to the human knowing, um, but there's some mystery in there where yeah their destiny is entwined with ours either personally or culturally so this is a very broad question it's going to be one of those kind of things like oh how can i pick just one but what would you say most inspires you about plants or nature in general what inspires me is that just most of the answers I'm looking for, the wisdom I need for my personal life, whether it's relationship drama, whether it's trying to understand some logical puzzle um, or anything I could ask, nature seems to just always have um, something I can observe to to answer those questions. I just have to put that question out there and stay patient and stay curious. And often it just presents itself. 
in the way the birds talk to each other or the branching of a tree or the way the the fall leaves come and so perfectly create this like insulation for everything underneath it as i'm trying to insulate my house and understand like the best way to understand that insulation is a matter of uh like trapping air pockets and like oh my gosh these leaves are doing it perfectly as they back <laughs> up these plants have just like perfected how to be in the world in such an effortless beautiful way um and if I can sit still enough, it's beautiful to be able to to receive those teachings in true kind of Taoist form. I appreciate that you keep using the word curiosity. I've done a little reading into the uh, practices of nonviolent communication, mm -hmm. and that's you know one of the tenets of that communication style is to always be approaching. Know, the person you're going to communicate with with a curiosity um, because it's going to let you remain open you know for whatever comes next without having those you know any kind of predisposed judgments and so forth so to hear you use the word it's like oh okay now we're taking it beyond just human to human communication we're talking about worldly communication and it's just as applicable if not even more so there for for humans ability to communicate with the natural world around us is to maintain that curiosity that's great what are some of your favorite herbal slash plant books or for that matter any books pertaining to the natural world and humans relation to it hmm. you may like to share yeah i think the biggest most favoriteest of mine um, is the Robin Wall Kimmerer's Braiding Sweetgrass. There's a theme on this show. Yeah, it's not the first time you've heard this one. <laughs> she perfectly holds all those pieces that really light me up. Just the love of plants and the interconnectedness of indigenous wisdom and, and scientific knowledge. And yeah, every essay is this perfect little uh, precious package that I just yeah. read over and over again. And I read it to my herbal students. We always talk, read the passage um, entitled The Honorable Harvest when talking about ethical wildcrafting. Because I can't, I can't say what she does better. That's great that you use it in your class. Yeah. That, that, that book is amazing. And I love that she did the audio version too. Mm. So if you get the audio version, you can hear her voice and, and it's just even more beautiful. And um, yeah, makes me cry every time I listen to it. So. For sure. And I'll put that link in the description for anyone who doesn't know about that book. Mm. Please check it out. It's awesome. It's, there's a lot in there. So, you know, it took me a while to, to listen to it because I kept having to sort of stop and. You gotta stop think. and just let it all sink in. Yeah. 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 You know, it's like a very there. intense love letter to nature, <laughs> about nature. There's another 
um, a fictional book that came out that's been a favorite called, have y'all read The Overstory? I've read part of it. I'm in the middle. <laughs> so, it's a beautiful story about a, a number of different narratives that that come weaving together and the common collective theme that runs through them is people's connection with plants and trees. And though it's a fictional story, it's just embedded with so much dendrology, like love and lore of of the trees from in so many different ways, the science of how the trees communicate with each other and the deep emotional response that, that we have towards these uh, old growth forests being cut down and the activism around it and the blight, the whole blight of the, the chestnuts. Mm-hmm. And there's so many just beautiful passages and stories that the author relays through the telling of this novel that uh, it can't help but like get you more fascinated about trees and it can't help but help you hold on to all the complicated feelings around humans connection with nature um, and with forests in general and so it touches something really special so it's another one I I definitely recommend also an audible (laughs) there's also an audible version so totally you have lots of time to listen So what advice would you give for any kind of budding herbalist or healer or even someone approaching grief work, just like somebody who's new into any of these things that you have had your, your feet in for 15 years, what, what advice might you give them? So I guess for the herbalists and the plant lovers, and as we spoke before, stay curious, stay humble allow space for the mystery, um, allow space for that unknowing and, and to receive from parts of yourself that might not be as, as online as the intellectual academic parts to appreciate, even though you might be in an herb school or even though you might be reading these, these tomes or, or canons of herbal knowledge to really regard your individual journey that there's certain plants that'll be beckoning you specifically to work with, to understand, to commune with, maybe to write a song about. Um, so to stay open to those forms and, you know, try growing this plant, you know, for a, a few years. Try doing, in a couple of days, try to eat nothing but this plant. Dieta with this. Explore these and these plants in different ways. I think for folks that uh, in a, that might be in a grief process, I would say see if you can be really present with yourself. See if you can devote time to just not fix anything, not change anything, not distract anything, but just be really present with whatever might be alive in your heart. Let your body be the guide. Just sit still and notice sensations in your body and if you can be okay with that pain or that tightness or that um, that energy and just allow it and see what it might be to give permission for that for that anger to show itself for those those tears to flow for you to just hold yourself as you'd hold a, a little baby duckling 
and to honor what you feel and know that it's okay to to stay in bed and cry it's okay to uh, to not get anything external done it's okay to realize internal work actually takes a lot of energy and, um, okay and recommended to to do that kind of work it's okay to not be okay it's okay to take off your the masks of uh, of holding it all together and just be your authentic self. So you can share that and be witnessed and to ask for support. Do you have any new and exciting ventures coming up you'd like to share with the audience? Uh, product launching, educational opportunities you're offering, or anything or things you're studying or anything you're working on that you'd like to tell people about? Yeah. Um, on the grief front, I will be continuing to host, um, community grief rituals and I'm doing some more in-depth work with that, both for people to explore who might be in a grief initiation and also who want to be able to hold that space. Um, I've been holding these facilitating circles for seven years and just this last summer did my first grief tending training where I was oh. teaching people some of the tools of how to hold this for their community because I think it's important to, for people to have access to these kind of rituals. Um, I'm in the process of kind of putting a schedule together around that and uh, on the musical front there's probably going to be some collaboration with um, the street creature puppeteers. We might be going to leaf in the spring and, and bringing the plant medicine through song and puppetry at that point. I, I'm still doing my private practice. And so folks who might want to uh, tune into that medicine are welcome to reach out. And I'd say across the board, if you want to stay connected to the the breadth of what I'm doing, this kind of musical and ritual healing work, you know, individual healing journeys. Um, feel free to sign up for my newsletter on my website. That's probably the best way to get info, which is uh, at www.foxhealing.com. So when you do the, uh, the grief ceremonies, um, do those get posted to your website or I guess yeah. you announce them in the newsletter? Okay. Yeah, so I'll send newsletters out for folks and yeah, it happens uh, seasonally more and more. I'm being asked to, to take these rituals throughout the Southeast. Also, if you want to host me in a place, I've got a whole team of grief tenders that are uh, interested to hold these kind of rituals and spaces. There's music, too, on, uh, on Spotify. You can, find okay. it, you can find it on um, Bandcamp is uh, the best place to support musical artists like myself. And I've also got some videos, including a dandelion video and the Earth is Alive video uh, there on YouTube. So we can check a few of those out. So a few songs that haven't been uh, recorded. Well, I want to thank you for joining us today. Thank you for chatting, it was awesome. Um, and yep, like I said before, I'll put all of your links down below and so people can follow you 
we are on, if you want to follow us, <laughs> we are on, you can listen to us on Anchor, on Spotify, and now Apple Podcasts, which is pretty excited. We also have a YouTube channel, which you can watch us, if you're not already, Facebook group, and Instagram, and all those links will be down below. And if you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so through Anchor, our Anchor page for $1, $5, or $10 a month. Or you can rate it, give us a rating uh, on iTunes. And we'll have a Patreon soon, so stay tuned for that. Uh, lots of ways to support us, and we appreciate that. And join us for our next episode where we'll be welcoming Patricia Howell, who is the founder of the Botanologos Herb School in northern Georgia and the author of, I remember oh, the exact it, title because it's it. so, oh, you got, got it. it? I got it. Southern Medicinal, Appalachian Medicinals. Medicinal Plants, Medicinal plants of, southern. of Southern Appalachia. Gotcha. It's like it's so easy, it it's makes it hard to forget. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. Which Jennifer has done some studying with her, and we've attended some classes of hers when presented here in town with the Organic Grower School. And she's a, a very, very good educator. So that'll be a that'll be a fun conversation. So stay tuned. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, and we'll talk to you later. Bye. Thanks, Thanks Josh. Bye. Have a good yeah, evening. Thank